Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 76. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. We're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's movie and pop culture blind spots and sharing our must-see movies and guilty pleasures from the past. Each episode, one of us gets to choose something, and we're in control of the remote. The DVD remote? Yes. Okay, I was in control of the remote. I chose something and forced Ashley to watch it. Yes. That's what happened. She'll never be the same again. <laughs> but that's how it works on our show. So join us as we discuss The Conformist. The Conformist, yes. That's what you chose. Dave chose this. Chosen by Dave. <laughs> Chosen by Dave. Uh, 1970 film. 70, yes. By Bernardo Bertolucci. Yes. Italian. Starring Jean-Louis Trintignant. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I practiced that. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, your first time watching this. And yeah. my sixth time watching it, okay. maybe. I probably like that. made you watch it in both film schools. No, I only, wa- I only had to watch it in one film school. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I didn't watch it in film school. Um, I watched it in Italian class. Okay, I see. Italian cinema class. Huh. Okay. So I don't. I can't remember if I've ever. I I know I told you at some point. I don't know if I told them. I'm pointing to the microphone. I didn't know you took Italian. I thought you no, were a I French didn't take, dude. No, I, not Italian language. But my minor at UC San Diego. So oh. I wasn't. I was in the visual arts media program That's where I did right. the film and video track. You know, but I took a minor in general literature, uh-huh. which means you could take anything in in the general literature I curriculum. You focused on Russian in that in that. Or just no, that was European. separate. That uh, I think I don't even think maybe that counted towards. I think that yeah. counted towards a minor. I took two classes in Russian, mm. li- Russian literature and translation. Long story short, I got to self-select a sequence of um, classes that you know complemented my film school stuff. So, yeah. and that's where we took. They had film and literature courses. So I took a German one, and it was and they had a very specific. You know, it was like German expressionism and film and literature in the Weimar period, you know? Mm. So it was all of that Fritz Lang and M and Metropolis and, you know, just on the verge of Nazi Germany and all that kind of leading up to that. Yeah. And then I took uh, uh, French New Wave mm. uh, with Alain Gégé Cohen or whatever his name was. <laughs> and uh, I took Italian neorealism or Italian oh, okay. cinema from neorealism through... Whatever. Post-fascist. I, t- I took that class too via my voyage to Italy with Marty. <laughs> okay. Actually, I was looking up. I think that professor still teaches at UCSD. Yeah. Pasquale Verdicchio. I don't know if he still teaches that class, but yeah. I still remember the class. Interesting. Okay. So, so I had not seen this. Um, I, I don't know why. I mean, like, I, I can't say that it was ever on, like, my list of, of foreign films that I needed to see, but I didn't know anything about it, so why, would it, be, why it. would it be on my list if I don't know anything about it? I didn't know anything about it as a film student. It's So it seems like <clears throat> that probably, because, you know, Martin Scorsese made a film, or a, I don't know, a series about 
Italian neorealism. Neo I realism. think it was shown as, I may have been yeah. split up, but it's a single two and a half hour I, documentary. I watched it on PBS sometime, and that's when I I went and I saw Bicycle Thieves, I saw um, Umberto D, I saw Knights of Capiria, you know, so, so I saw some Italian neorealism. That reminds me, we still have yeah. to see Open City. Yeah. But, like, this, this film, like, I want to say, like, to me, like, it was instantly recognizable. Like, this is Martin Scorsese. This is Francis Ford Coppola. That's the style they decided to do. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> that's really Cause, interesting. Cause, like, so we, you, saw, you we, immediately saw yeah. Like the the influence of yeah. this on like that next generation yeah. of movies. It looked so familiar. Actually, the opening scene with the guy just sitting there reminded me of one of the French New Wave films, and I don't remember which one it is. Which one did we watch more recently? Uh, Contempt. No, this was. Oh, uh, is we... it is it the Truffaut? We watched Stolen Kisses, but that was the comedy sort of. Is that the one that has the guy, like, sitting alone in his room at the beginning of it as well? I'm not placing that all of a sudden. Anyway, some movie that we just saw that I think was a <clears throat> French film. I told you I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember all that we It must seen. be... St- no, because Stolen Kisses doesn't start with a guy alone in his room, does it? Okay. Well, anyway, it was some film that we saw recently. which It may be Truffaut. I don't know. But, um... So that also reminds me of The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. Some of the cinematography and the... Of those uh, close-ups and just sitting there. It's the movie with the... There's a murder in a club. That movie. Oh, uh, Le Samurai? Le Samurai, yes. Yeah, that's you're it. right. You're absolutely right. There's yeah. a room... The, there's a, the, It opens, like, nearly the same with, like, him yeah. sitting on the bed. Jean-Pierre Melville. Yeah. You're right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that that would have been before this. Yeah. So that's backwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's influence. a it's a pre pre influence or something like that. Anyway, but but yeah, to me the look of this film like we had just you just watched The Godfather with Fiona and I didn't watch all of it, but like the color scheme and the way things are like the way the film was produced, it's this. It's so much this, you know. So let me pick up on what you're saying (laughs) and and now chime in and say Coppola was so inspired by this that he got Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, to shoot many of his films, including Apocalypse Now and several of the other ones. Well, that has a different color scheme, but... Yeah, but Godfather I'm saying, has pretty much I'm the saying, same color he's like, I have to collaborate with yeah. this cinematographer. <laughs> he's going to film my movies. The man is a painter of light. So I guess we should probably back up and talk about uh, what this film is. And I got to back off the mic because I'm blowing yeah. it out Are here. you blowing out? Okay. <laughs> um, so we have a dude. His name is Marcello Clarice. That's right. It's Marcello. They say Marcello a lot. Um, I should remember that. <laughs> it's a period piece, right? Yeah. So we're in the 30s. Yeah, it, and it kind of plays around with time a little bit, back and forth. I'm gonna which pick up on that later. Because boy, the hell does it play around? Yeah, the time. yeah, it does. We go back and forth. There's sort of no transition. It's just kind of like 
one scene to the next year in the past year in the future film student year. loved, loved yes loved <laughs> um so we have a guy in uh, it's 30s Italy. So mm-hmm. sort of as fascism is becoming the dominant thing that's going to last until Mussolini's already in power. Yeah, sometime after the war, I believe in Italy, it stuck around for a while after the war. This is yeah. pre-war. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it's set pre-war, but then I guess. But it, it, ends, it, 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 ends it, it ends in at, 1943, as, actually. Uh, in 43. Yeah, so okay, it's, so it's, as it fascism even... is. Uh, Fading out, but yeah. um, so we have a guy who is sort of recruited to the fascist cause, but he's kind of sort of ambivalent about it in general. You so know, the only thing I'm going to correct there is he goes out of his way to volunteer okay. for this. <laughs> I missed that part. So, <laughs> so he suggests the whole thing. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's just a like. Yeah. A, detail is like he how he comes out of nowhere i think they mentioned at some point it's very unusual the yeah. way you suggested this you just came to us <laughs> yeah i didn't realize that i didn't realize that he had introduced i don't know how i missed that but i probably think it's a line I of was, dialogue and the fact that i I've was seen a little it bit zoning times. out when we were looking at the um the headquarters of the the fascist party yeah, in, yeah. in italy i was i was like you know entranced by their tra- travertine and and uh, <laughs> limestone talk, walls I want you to talk and marble. About brutalist architecture. Brutalist later architecture. On. Yes. How it can. Uh, I, well, I don't know if it's brutalism. It's like neoclassicism, but it's like modernist neoclassicism. You're right. But yeah. <laughs> One of the buildings is that that building that's got initials. It's like the E something something. Mm, yeah. And I feel stupid because I'm saying that, and I don't know what the initials are. It's three letters, and it starts with an E, and it's like one of those. Yeah blocky weird neoclassicist buildings so famous fascist stuff famous fascist stuff yeah we can talk about okay back to, arch- back to our story so he you know signs up for this mission essentially to assassinate his former college professor who is a, an anti-fascist who's been exiled to france so he's living in paris um at the same time our anti-hero our hero guy is He's decided to get married, not mm-hmm. because he particularly cares about this woman or wants... He just wants to be normal. He That's wants to belong. He wants to construct his normality, I think yes. he says at one point. <laughs> he is the conformist. Yes. And, you know, we find out that, like, the sort of root of all this of him feeling sort of alienated from everything is that he had sort of an unfortunate incident where he was hit on by his family chauffeur and then he shot him and then thought he killed him. Yeah. You know, so this this sort of young, sort of tragic, scary thing sort of shapes his whole journey of trying to fit in with what's considered to be normal in Italy in the 30s, which is to be a fascist, I guess. So, yeah. yay. The roots of fascism, <laughs> as seen through the... Strange Freudian psychology of one man. Yes. <laughs> and I guess... So they I, go to Paris they go to, to Paris, carry yeah. out this mission, but it's like a kill two birds with one stone because it's his honeymoon with yeah, Julia. Yeah. And well, I guess that's just his cover story or the excuse or something like Yeah, but it's actually like their honeymoon. At the it is time. their actual honeymoon. Um, and in the meantime, he... So his professor has a young French ballet, wife, ballet teacher wife... 
Um, and like all of the descriptions, I say that he falls in love with her. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think early on he, I mean, like from the very beginning, I think he was not interested in killing her. He did not want her to be part of it, even before he knew her. He yeah. was not interested in, in killing her, as far as I can I tell. I think he might convince... We can talk about this yeah. more, but I think he might convince himself that he's in love with her, but she represents something to yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and then um, he doesn't so much carry out the plot, but the other Italian, you know, Gestapo secret service people kind of take out the hit for him his uh, comrade yeah. and driver in the secret police uh, <laughs> yes. agent manginello <laughs> who is either driving him or following him throughout the entire movie so you know my um my research all said that that it seems to be they sent him with him to make sure that he carries it out and that he's not just like going to paris on on yeah, the, and on I th- the country and I think, dime. I think he's there to lend assistance as yeah. needed, right? <laughs> it turns out the assistance he's lending the whole time is kind of this constant pressure to, like, carry yeah. it out. Well, it's it's funny. Like, he does... I mean, like, he signed up for this, but he doesn't know how to shoot a gun. He's never shot a gun before. He's really uncomfortable with guns. He kind of doesn't want to hold them, you know. So, this is... can This is... I don't know what you think about this, but this time I saw the film... I was reading, I thought that his initial proposition was sort of just to infiltrate mm. Professor Quadri in Paris, get to know him and find out who his connections are in the movement, in the anti-fascist uh, okay. movement were yeah. in Italy. And I think that the that at some point, uh, Manginello the, the yeah. says, forget all of that. Now they just want you to just eliminate him. him. Yeah. And so I don't think he initially proposes to assassinate yeah. him. I think that's what it turns into. Yeah. At least it's how well, I Well, I just remember it. that there was a conversation where they talk about his him and his... Like, if his wife is there to witness it, she should be killed too. And he's like, no, let's figure out some point, way. Yeah, at a certain... But I think it's about halfway through that... Yeah. The, that it's, well, halfway through what? Because it's yeah. not even in order. Yeah. <laughs> At, At some, some point. point, the mission changes, and they like they just want you to to yeah. take him out. Yeah. There's also some talk with Manginello remembering the last thing he was sent out on, where they they said after he carried out an assassination, "Did you get the counter orders? Because it was called off." Yeah. <laughs> so nothing was called off in this yeah. case. So he does, uh, in some way, shape, or form, he becomes like he falls for the the professor's young wife. Yeah, I don't... I, to me, it, I mean, I don't know. There are conversations. I mean, I the only she, thing that comes up is he says that she reminds him of the, like, the prostitute that his father took him to when he was a young boy. That's He said she has the same eyes. Oh, no, it's a <laughs> prostitute in the scene when he goes to visit the... Uh, to, to, to talk about the mission... We see the scene where he sees the... I thought that was a flashback to when his father took him or something like that. I don't know why. No, it's him. That's the scene where he arrives at the seaside to meet the 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 commander or whatever they call yeah. the, the head of the organization mm. to discuss the, the mission. And like he arrives at the seaside, you see like a painting of the little boat there. And then he walks into the scene. It's, it walks past the boat. It's the same thing. And then he goes in and the prostitute with the scar on her face yeah, is yeah. there. Um... And he he just she just gives him a hug 
too. I think. Yeah, he gives her a hug or something like that. That's the extent of it. So clearly, this film requires multiple viewings for (laughs) to get get it straight. I think just because of the sort of out of orderness of things that that it's kind of hard to catch your bearings. Or it was for me, at least, you know. I can never experience yeah. this for the first yeah. time again. <laughs> but I want to tell you that the, that the first time I saw this in that, mm-hmm. that film class, you know, we did our evening screenings. You know, your sleepy husband. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being drowsy. Yeah. And not really getting it. Like mm. being very baffled and confused and not sure I understood the order of what was happening when or even if I got the entire narrative and they had a thing where I guess they rented the prints mm-hmm. and so they would send them back later in the week but sometimes like the on-campus film club they would pat they would get a hold of the print and they would do another screening at the UCSD movie theater like mm-hmm. at a weird time is like Sunday night at nine o'clock or like, yeah so I went to see it like three days later I yeah. was like this is really interesting to me. I'm not even sure I like it. I don't think I got it, but I need to see it again. I immediately yeah. felt like I needed to see it again. And then I came out and I like saw the whole thing this time. And now it was starting to go into place, to fall into place. But I, I had never, ever, ever seen anything with such a baffling, nonlinear flashback structure before. And it like completely excited me. And, and, and like, <laughs> I was obsessed with it. So uh, it's... I'm glad that you said that because, like, my initial response is that I felt a little cold about it. But as I've been thinking about it over a couple days since we saw it, it keeps, like, it keeps coming back to the forefront of my mind about thinking about different things and different ideas and different, um, you know, different um, visuals and that sort of thing. So, but yeah, like, initially I was... It's it's it does it didn't grab me the way that like some of my favorite films grab me, but it is, you know, it's like one of those films that that you need to chew on for a little bit and maybe see again. <laughs> so now I'm gonna say yeah, like I completely understand that because I was thinking about that today. I was like, this is a movie that doesn't like I don't really feel like an emotional involvement mm. at all to yeah. me. <laughs> It like, but, and yet it's an aesthetic experience. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but it's almost the pure art of the film, of the cinema. Yeah. Like for me, like I, everything I think about when I walk away are the images that mm. I can, that I remember and the, the look of certain scenes, the, the tempo of the editing, the color, the architecture and production design, the way the music works with it it's all kind of formalist stuff and yet it does like create like this full fascinating world but i'm not really that involved personally one way or the other with marcello and yeah like like so it doesn't bother me it's interesting to me in a story level but it's not like it's not the way you get invested with characters in most films that, no. are, that are good. It's not, a, for me, it's like not about the, the story. It's about, it, it, it's like, it's about the poetry of it or something yeah. like that. And, and I would, and I was trying to think, well, what other movies are like that for yeah. me? And the ones I came up with are, to some extent, Citizen Kane. I mean, yeah. I think... That, yeah, definitely. Like, where that. I'm much more blown away by the mechanics of it and the, the you know... And that, all, that also actually has the nonlinear 
narrative form. Yeah. And it's it's from a cerebral kind of level, but also there is kind of the aesthetic pleasure for me of, of seeing that film. Another one, which you probably won't agree with, but that I experience in much the same way is 2001. I didn't see that. Because if you see 2001 yeah. in 70 millimeter in a movie theater, it's a complete... I have. It's yes. a complete ex- <laughs> full-on cinema experience. Yeah. It's, you're just inhabiting this world of you know light and color and floating in space and yeah. stuff like that no i can i definitely yeah that i think that that's those are apt comparisons so when i show this to, to you as like an important movie to me it's not like oh my god you know i feel hurt or somehow disappointed that yeah. you didn't like that you walked away feeling kind of cold or whatever like that yeah like i don't feel warm to the story of it yeah. but i feel I still, like, I'm, there's a, for me, I don't know, I just have an awe, (laughs) a feeling of, a sense of awe for, like, the beauty of it in some Mm -hmm. way. I don't know if it's beauty or what it is, but, like, it does stuff in film that, that, uh, it was the first time I'd seen, Mm -hmm. I think, a film like this. And all that it can do. And it and so as a film student, it opened up all of these possibilities to me. Yeah. Like, you can tell a story where you basically take the entire narrative and put it in a blender and yeah. then just show this part and then this part and then this part. I, it's... Well, it's kind of... Well, for a movie that, that does leave me very warm, uh, the new version of um, Little Women that uh, does that. She completely pulled it apart and stuck it back together again in whatever okay. order she... Look, how about look Greta at something Gerwig. like um, Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood... Oh, yeah. In the Mood of, for, for Love. love. Sorry, yes. I can't even say it. <laughs> so that one is beautiful in this sort of visual poetry kind of way and the counterpoint of the music. But I'm also deeply moved by the characters in that one. Oh, Wong Kar Wai does a lot of that. So, he like, does it with that other I'm one I'm really emotionally saw. involved in that film. Yeah. And I have the aesthetic pleasure of the the film itself and the color and yeah. the... And the, the Chunking Express does that too. And Chung, well, I mean, basically, all of most his of films it, do I've that. I've only seen like three of his yeah, films. Yeah, those three films do that though. <laughs> so... But I don't want anybody to think it's just cerebral because it's it when I'm watching this movie, like it does hit on a subverbal like it it's it's washing over me in yeah. a way. The way you might stand in front of a painting or something like yeah. that. Because I can close my eyes right now and tell you I mean, there are a few images to me in movies that are as amazing as, like, the leaves blowing over the cobblestones when he is taking his mother to the... So the one for me was when he visits his dad in the... um, In the... It's supposed to be an asylum. It's actually a meeting place in the sort of fascist it's that building central, i'm talking about yeah yeah it? that exactly. complex yeah so they have it set up as if it's a it's an asylum which is a cool use of that because it it's like so stark like the benches are white marble and the background is white marble and there's like a weird like eagle statue behind him or something yeah. like that um yeah and then you have the you know the sort of her his dad who's going through some sort of like manic you know, thing, yeah. writing something down, and he's trying to have a conversation with him. That's... Which is interesting, because in contrast to when he's visiting his mother, who's in this, like, you know, falling apart villa, you know, with, yeah. that's, like, 
you know, Mediterranean pink and, you know, contrasted against the, like, stark, you know, white of the... It's very interesting. I wrote that down. I yeah. made a list of just some of the images that <laughs> yeah. and moments that stood out to me in the, the Insane Asylum was yeah. one for me, too. It's like, I can close my eyes right now, though, and, like, there's a dozen of those, yeah. probably. And even the first shot we talked about, him sitting in on the bed in the hotel room with the neon light like blinking on and off as yeah. the credits roll, um, which has the bookend at the end of the movie of him sitting with the firelight on the, him. Flickering on him yeah. in, in the Colosseum. In the Colosseum, yeah. and in the aftermath of the fascism falling when he's denouncing everybody. You know, it's it's interesting, like... I don't know what it is, but there's something about the Italian experience, and maybe particularly the Italian experience of people who grew up in Rome, but maybe not. I don't know, but there's this, like, and it probably has to do with, like, being around, like, super old things and super new things and all the political changes that happened in Italy in the last hundred years or whatever, but there's, like, this, like, obsession with like symbols as as and like it's really obvious in this like you know I mean like people are symbols you know buildings are symbols you know everything's a symbol but like you know a lot of there's this really fantastic um Italian artist and I can't ever remember his name but he works in sculpture as his medium and he does all these like he takes like this like symbols from the Catholic Church and transforms them into sculptures. So he has like a horse that's that has like the words that are written on the cross on it and mm-hmm. you know it's just it's very weird. It's very but it's all it's all about symbolism and and like I think that he's doing that same sort of thing like looking at that relationship between fascism and you know the Catholic Church and and like you know that sort of respect for for authoritarian things and how that there can be a comparison made between the religious aspect and the political aspect and anyway so I think that they're in a lot of especially art from that time period and art reacting to that time period seems to to really you know delve into that sort of the symbols and they largely it's like religious iconography you know in a way and how you can you know take people's religious beliefs and convert them to a political standpoint you know and then push them in a direction that they might not have gone Mm -hmm. if you hadn't made that relationship between the religious aspect of things and the political aspects of things. And I think that that probably played a role in, in why Italy went fascist when it did, you know, you know, similarly Spain, you know, had that same sort of thing, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that, but (laughs) (laughs) we didn't mention the fact that this is an adaptation of a novel by Alberto Moravia. Yes. I have the book on my shelf and I've never read the book, which seems like I would learn so much more about what Bertolucci's adaptation was if I had read the damn book, but I still haven't read the damn book. The damn book. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, just side note is uh, Alberto Moravia wrote the conformist but he also wrote the novel contempt upon which the godard film is Mm. is made so i don't know 
I'm not instantly seeing any thematic connections between the two, but just throwing that out there as a factoid. No. Trivia. He's <laughs> one of the great Italian authors of the 20th century. Yeah, I haven't, you know, as much as I appreciate, you know, mid-century design, I have not done much reading of the literature of that time frame at all, you know. Um, I don't know why. The literature and translation, I'm starting to read some of this stuff now lately. I've been picking up some of those New York Review books, uh, and uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's. It seems like. I mean, I guess I've seen lots, probably lots of films that are either in direct reaction or, or you know, subtle reaction to the changes that happen politically during and after World War Two. You know. Yeah. Um, which I mean, like, was really a sea change for Europe, in a way that it wasn't in the U.S. because we were so separate from it, whereas it was happening in their. In their homes. I mean, not to say that World War II didn't make major changes in the U.S., but, like, the Europe that came out after World War II is very different than what what went into World War II, yeah. you know? So, um, I mean, and, and architecturally, politically, all of that, you know, so... <laughs> So let's talk a little bit more about the weird narrative structure. Okay. It's yeah. So I was actually curious to... So I had convinced myself, now having seen... Like, I've seen the movie half a dozen times probably over yeah. the years. But I was convinced that... I, I, I actually kind of felt embarrassed when I was like, oh, you know... Like, before we started the thing, I said, it's kind of a weird structure. So if you feel lost, it'll probably all make sense by the end. And then when I saw the film, I was like... Well, that seemed pretty straightforward to me. I, she probably totally got it right away. Well, I, I, like I said, I think I mean generally I got it because I'm used to this kind of structure. It's normal now. This but is, it wasn't, you know, then. It, yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't when I saw it. Yeah. So that's why I was like, I, I was thinking to myself after I made that comment, I was like, actually, this is probably pretty run of the mill, non-linear narrative in the 21st century. Yeah. But. You know, and you've been well versed in that in yeah. in like long form television series and all the movies that came out of Tarantino and Pulp Fiction and all of the weird stuff that he did. I mean, it's just normal to like put a put a narrative into a blender. Yeah, this is interesting because we've been watching a lot of anime lately, which I think makes a lot of use of this sort of thing where they throw you in the middle of something like that's going on. Yeah. And then you have to get your bearings. And like, I feel like we still think of television series as being the sort of linear thing. But like, I don't know if it's just the form of being manga turned into anime or comic book turned into yeah. movie that... They have a lot of those flashbacks. So, like, you know, we'll be sitting there watching something and you'll be like, did I miss something? And I'll be like, no, we just don't know the answer to that yet. But you I know? still don't. That's, it's not my assumption. <laughs> yeah. that, it's not my first assumption that yeah. a, a television show is doing that. Yeah. Or an anime is well, doing it's, that. I think that that maybe in American film in particular, we do a lot of like leading people like. You know, whereas I feel like movies like this, they don't, there's no leading us anywhere. It's just like, here, here's the middle of this. Now here's something else. You figure out how they're connected or you will find out how they're connected, you know, eventually, you know. 
there's a there's a sense of discovery, I guess, yeah. in 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 revealing a narrative that way. So you have some backstory, and you know what's happening now, but you don't know what connects the backstory to the what's happening now kind of thing. So the intriguing thing about the conformist to me is that the weird storytelling, the nonlinear storytelling is almost entirely motivated by the psychology of the character yeah, yeah. and his associations as as he's on his way to carry out the mission. And so if I mean if you look again at what the structure of the movie is, the first two two-thirds to three quarters of the movie is the 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 present tense of the movie yeah. is is the morning he gets picked up at the hotel and is driven in down the ice through the snowy roads to the forest yeah. where they're going to carry out the assassination yeah and that's the frame story yeah so the frame story like you call it a story the yeah. frame story is literally marcello in the back of the car remembering the rest of the movie mm-hmm. in flashback yeah and that gets you up to a certain point and then you're on the day of the, and then you're, yeah. and then the assassination plays out, right? And it's horrifying and shocking yeah. and awful, and very weird, right? It's like something out of uh, Julius Caesar with the man yeah. being stabbed a million. Yeah, with, with, it's kind of weird that they chose. That's the way they're going to do it. They're going to stab him with eight people instead of. They have a gun. <laughs> yeah. But before I lose the thread. Yeah. And then you go from there. Suddenly you jump you have a flash forward mm-hmm. and now you jump ahead to 1943. He has a, a small child, yeah. you know, four or five year old child. It's the night that uh, Mussolini steps down Designs, yeah. uh-huh, and, and uh, the people are roving the streets looking for fascists. Uh, you know, the mobs are looking yeah. to, for people to string up or whatever it yeah. is that <laughs> happened to everybody. The night he denounces his old friend who, yeah. who he started the whole thing with. The night he sees Lino, the chauffeur, mm-hmm. who isn't who dead assaulted after him all. back then, yeah. and he thought he killed, is alive and trying to pick up like a young homeless boy in the Coliseum. Yeah. So, um, I was so interested. So I don't think I ever had to write a paper yeah. on this thing, but I was so fascinated by the time structure because. Even with this this sort of A narrative of he's in the car, you know, that the frame story of the car, and then something triggers something that Manganello says triggers like a flashback that, yeah. that then fills in like, oh, this is when he like first talked to his friend about, you know, coming up with the idea, and then we see him go meet with the higher ups and we see him, you know, preparing to go off on a honeymoon with his uh fiance and all that kind of stuff. Um now I can't remember where, <laughs> what the second part of that sentence was. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, is those those flashbacks aren't always in linear order. Yeah. And sometimes you have, this is the thing that really got me, is sometimes you have flashbacks within flashbacks, which like started this Hall of Mirrors Russian doll thing that I don't even know if you picked up on, but you've got really interesting things. I think my favorite one mm. is... Um, is the one where he gets out of the car in the in the present tense story yeah. that we're driving to the assassination. They get out on a, on an icy road, and Manganello is following him in the car, mm-hmm. and he like waves him away and tries to you yeah. know, get him to pass him and everything. And that brings up an association that 
like there's this weird flash cut to mm-hmm. him as a child with the limo car yeah. following him on the road, but it goes back and forth a couple of times. Yeah. So it actually is like film depicting deja vu or something, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating to me. And then that leads into the flashback that shows the afternoon when he was being bullied and he got in the car of this strange yeah. chauffeur and got taken away and, and escorted into that weird, into the guy's room and um, what happens, happens. Yeah. So interesting. It, it just reminds me, like, just to compare it to another film that we've covered on the podcast, which is Eight and a Half, which mm-hmm. is similar, but with dreams you know, so it's instead of it being like a linear memory, like like it's it's dreams or impressions. It's but sometimes it's yeah, fantasies. That's sometimes, true. sometimes the Marcello Mastroianni character yeah. will see somebody, and you'll get like a little reverie or like mm. strange like fantasy, yeah. and then you come back to where he is. Yeah, like in the in the uh, the spa in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> When eight and a half was what sixty late fifties okay so it probably had some sort of fifty eight or something impact like that. on that fifty you know? nine I can't no yeah. I think it's before new wave mm. by a year or so I can't or maybe it's even fifty I don't know I think Dolce Vita is fifty four and go and back and look yeah. at that <laughs> the podcast episode please pause while Dave googles no <laughs> I'm sure you can figure out when eight and a half came out. <laughs> But yeah, I think that it it's it's that that way, and and similarly, like you feel like you have to get your foundations every every ten minutes or something like that, or well, even more frequently like the that, car, right? Yeah, like I don't even think I understood the first time I saw the film that the car was yeah the narrative of like like that the film all takes place in the in a couple hours while he's in the yeah. car <laughs> until you get to the aftermath. Yeah. And then, and then the narrative is now we're a narrative and we're telling a story about him before we're in his mind as he's remembering and and thinking about this and wrestling with his guilt because the entire time that he's on the drive, he learns when he gets in the car in the beginning of the film that, uh, professor Quadri's wife, Anna, who he does not want to be there and does not want her to die. Like that she decided to go along with him on the trip. And you hear references to this in the beginning that, oh, she went with him. You may not known who they're talking about until later in the film. You're like, oh, okay. That might've been what I was talking about. You know, it's an interesting, I mean, like we don't, it's funny because we get to know him, but we don't really get to know him because really we're getting to know him through his own, visions and his own memories and his own which you know well and he's someone who's completely unable to accept who he is and so yeah. everything is about the masks that he wears yeah and who he's trying to appear to be yeah right so he he wants to be a model fascist fit into society such a yeah. weird thing to want but okay <laughs> I know there are people. There are lots of if people. If it's the dominant, uh, if they're the ones in power. It doesn't even have to yeah. be dominant. I mean, obviously. <laughs> Case in point, the entire United States right now. But, not the entire United States. Large pockets of the United States. But, like, it's what I find is fascinating. And, like, maybe the most, I don't know why, 
one of the more sympathetic characters in the movie is is Mag- Maginelli, I guess. You know, who's just like disgusted. Yeah, who's like disgusted with this guy for for like being like, you know, if you're gonna do this, then like fucking do it. Like, don't. So you feel bad that he's all the time like having to like <laughs> like you but know pester him about it. Yeah. Well, no. Well, there's that. Well, I mean, he says some pretty awful stuff, um, which unfortunately is pir- pirated by uh, some scary trolls on the right um, <laughs> in the United States, but. Um, uh, oh, he's just line them all up yeah. and shoot them. Yeah, that, well, yeah. And um, he is an assassin. I mean, But, him- like, this sort of, like, if you're gonna espouse this particular, if you're gonna join us, then just do it. Just admit to yourself what you're doing. You can't do both. You know, if you're going... You can't pay lip service to yeah, this. Either you, you're... You, I mean, like, if you're gonna behave like a fascist, you're a fascist. You can't, like, later say, oh, well, I was only doing it for, you know, to get by. Or if I, I mean, like, if you're going to act like a Nazi, you're a fucking Nazi. That's what you are, you know. Yeah. If you. So it's like, it put, up, put up you, or shut up. It doesn't kind of matter if you really believe it or not, or if you really want to kill someone or not, or if you're only, ambi- I mean, the end result is a man and his wife are dead <laughs> because of what you did. You are a fascist, regardless of. So what do you make of, uh, there's the scene at the ballroom. Yeah. Right? Meanwhile, Anna is carrying on this strange flirtation, Quadri's wife, the professor's wife, is carrying on this flirtation with both him and with her. I think she's trying, I think she's more, to me, she seems more aware of what his presence represents, that he, to me, I think she's offering herself in a in a way to prevent her husband I mean that's like, how I, th- I read it yeah. this time too yeah and I don't know that I always did but I think she's also genuinely attracted to his wife yeah well she's fu- his wife is fun you know so I feel bad that she got she gets a saddled, bad rap because, saddled with this guy yeah you because know? <laughs> he's like she's a complete idiot like he's like I don't care about her she's totally ordinary she's not very smart she's kind of an idiot but maybe it's because it's uh, Stefania Sandrelli playing her or something. Yeah. I find her completely hilarious She's and delightful. Charming, yeah. Yeah, I really like <laughs> I really like her. She's much more of a human being than yeah. he is. Yeah. But I mean like she and I don't think she's probably not as clueless as she plays. I mean, like, maybe she is. I don't know. We don't know enough about well, her. Well, she's got this whole kind of number of kind of playing childlike, but yeah. not really but also kind of sexy sort yeah. of thing. Well, I mean, like, I mean, how do you get by in these, I mean, In like, these troublesome in fascist these times. In times, times, you conform or you... She's conforming in her way. Or you tune out and that, you know, she chose to tune out, you know, I guess, yeah. you know. <laughs> She's kind of just in it for the, the honeymoon, the shopping, yeah. husband and their apartment they're going to share together. Yeah. I mean, the life. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and if he becomes a model fascist, hey, their status probably goes up. Yeah. But what I was going to say is he, uh, in that ballroom scene, uh, where actually she, Anna and his wife, uh, Julia, 
have that really sensuous, interesting dance that yeah. like everybody that kind of stops the floor, right? Because it's just a that actually was the first time I realized that this was supposed to be the '30s. I like didn't ever really give much thought to the time period that it was. Yeah, until like they are dressed in like sort of drapey silk evening wear, which would have been like what you would wear to like a swanky restaurant or a nightclub, and they're hanging out at this like you know, regular person's, like, dance hall, yeah. you know, where everybody's, everybody's, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, like, I wouldn't, I, not lower class, but, like, working it's class. It's just a middle class, a you go of, and have a yeah. beer and a wine, and then you dance kind So of they're thing. dressed nicely, but nothing compared to these women in these, like, you know, that are, you know, covered in jewelry and mm-hmm. drapey silk, you know, backless evening wear and right. stuff like that so they're kind of making a scene amongst these you know people that are just enjoying scene. their saturday you know <laughs> and you have this amazing image of they start the the dance the yeah. what are those dances called where you do the chain or you grab i you, don't know the conga i, I don't <laughs> know what it's called <laughs> it's not that song but it's the thing where you all like grab each other yeah. by the hand and go in a line yeah. all over the place it's, and it's wrap european around. folk dancing i don't know whatever that is <laughs> It's a wonderful scene where they do that. It's quite long, actually, where they they end up leaving and go out into the snow outside the restaurant Mm. and come back in. And Marcello's, like, trapped in the middle of the room. And then they all kind of encircle and spiral around him. And you have this great overhead bird's eye view of of him being completely yeah. like claustrophobically <laughs> surrounded by the entire line of dance it's it's a wonderful image yeah and i'm sure it's uh, also a metaphor yes <laughs> as many things are in this film but yeah. he tries to give what i keep i can't ever get to it he gives the gun to manganello mm. in that scene that's and, right he goes and in the so back is and... that him like i'm not going to do it but i'll give you i'll tell you here's where they're going yeah right yeah. And he gives them the address. Yeah. I mean, they don't even have that conversation. He's just like, yeah. I don't want this anymore. Yeah. Is that him deciding he's not yeah, going I to do I it? I think he wanted and he's to do ca- it. He's crapping out. He's basically yeah. saying, I'm not going to, I can't do it. But here, you arrange it now. Yeah. So it's not even him arranging it. Well, and I think it's funny they still make him go. Like, they didn't have to take him. Like- well, and the only reason he wants to go, he's like, hurry up and catch up to them because I want to get her out of it and he's like i need to get there and stop her from being involved in it but magnello is kind of like duh she's there and we're not gonna let her live we're gonna take her out yes well and like that there's that sort of like heart-wrenching scene where like she sees him in the car after her husband has been killed she comes pounding for help on for help and and he just sits there he doesn't shoot her but he doesn't... No, and he has the gun. Yeah, but he doesn't do so anything. So Manganiello's like, for God's sake, fucking shoot her. Yeah. And he just stands... He, and he also doesn't help her he doesn't or, work react, to save or her even either. react to her. No. His face doesn't even change. He's just kind of like a frozen, cold-faced guy. Yeah. And, and that's horrifying, that yeah. scene where... And it's also one of the earlier... One of the most chaotic handheld camera scenes I remember seeing in a film that old. That's right, yeah. Is, is her running off through the woods with the the assassins chasing her. And it's a really long, uncomfortable mm. scene of the handheld camera chasing her. And then they gun her down and then she doesn't die right away. And mm. she's got blood all over her and it's against the white snow. It's an, And it's another one of those images that stick with you like forever. Yeah. Well, there's that, that one scene like... 
when the car gets stopped and then they're just sitting there waiting to see if they should check on the other car and like there's a scene behind them with the sunlight through the trees as the assassins are coming down which is pretty incredible some 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 nice uh, tree and sunlight imagery there which I guess probably, I enjoy sunlight and tree yeah, imagery must have been really hard to expose correctly you know because you have the lovely like sunbeams coming through the trees it's pretty intense you know and then the creepy little it's one of the shots that yeah. one of the things that Victoria <laughs> Storaro did that everybody remembers yeah so and then but at the root of all this too you have this weird kind of paint by numbers kind of simplistic Freudian kind of psychology sort of thing with like he was molested or whatever as a little boy and then now he's now all of this comes out of him trying to suppress like what happened and perhaps his own what he fears is his own complicity or homosexuality so he became a fascist I think well I think the last um, scene suggests that maybe he's um uh interested in the the homeless boy that Lena was hitting on, you so, know. I don't know why, but I've never noticed or seen that the boy is in the shot, like naked or something. Yeah, he's like laying on a laying on a bench or something like that near the fire. I don't know like why that. my face always my eyes always go to Marcello's his body and his, his sitting there and his face. And I, I don't I think, think the boy like reaches for him or something like that. Or yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know, know if he's begging why. or, you know, maybe I'm so like fatigued by the time I get to that point <laughs> that I just never have noticed that. Cause well, I saw that ending is not my favorite ending. Like, I think we could have done, I don't know that part. I don't know. That I don't, is necessary at all. I don't like the ending of him recognizing the limo driver. Yeah, that was weird. And also... And then it makes his his whole fragile framework fall apart. You know, I don't know. Well, so he denounces... Yeah. He denounces Pino... Whatever. Lino. He denounces the limo driver who abused him as a child. Yeah. And says he's the fascist. And he blames the Professor Quadri killing yeah. on him. He's a fascist. He's a homosexual. He he killed... He committed an assassination. He killed Professor he, Quadri is what yeah, he said. Yeah, he gets the mob to... <laughs> Yeah, to go him. after them. And then he takes down his blind fascist friend. Yeah. <laughs> which is fine, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if you're going to be a Nazi, you, you have to take the consequences. You know, I just... Like, early people's fumbling... So, like, Freud kind of... <sighs> ruined everything for a long time. <laughs> Well, I read that Bertolucci was in Freudian psychoanalysis and was kind of okay. and kind of threw in some of this stuff that I don't even know if it's really in the book. Well, it's just like it's like I mean, I guess when you're developing anything like a framework to explain any complicated thing, it's going to be way too simplistic when it starts out. But the thing is is when it's really simplistic and symbolic like that, like losing teeth means this or whatever, then people really latch onto it and like um, it makes for some sort of clunky films. So that's <laughs> so, so sort of Hitchcock's uh, films. Right. Some of the more clunky aspects. And are, so that's the level yeah. of this movie that kind of <laughs> is just an oddity. Yeah. That's kind of like 
okay. Like the stuff with the, like the flashback with yeah. the childhood. So my reading of that is the guy molests him and we cut away from it. Yeah. Not that it almost happened. I think it happened. And yeah, it, I think and, that, that and was the reading. It's that implied most in getting. in the in the confessional because he's supposed yeah. to go to confession. So you also have like a flash forward from the flashback. That's a flashback from the car ride. Yeah. That's him in confessional before they get married. Yeah. Where the priest is like very into hearing the details of, of, of the his story. molestation. Yeah, that was. But then immediately absolves him as soon as he says he's just got a position with the secret police to carry out uh, acts against political transgressors. And the guy's like immediately like... (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think that probably... It's interesting. I'd love to read more about like the relationship between the... Because traditionally like fascist ideology would, would remove any sort of religion as, you know... Because what you you don't want to anybody to hold anything above the state, you know, and if you hold God above the state, so like, you know, a lot of yeah. Know, but I, my reading of the priest yeah. reacting to that is the church is gonna do whatever it needs to to stay yeah afloat exactly in the time where the power, yeah they don't want to rock the boat because right. like the fascists could come down against the, right against the church. So we've you know? got to bless this horror that's yeah. going on. Yeah. It's all on the up and up as long as we get to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. I don't know if that's actually what happened, but that's that's the reaction of this specific priest you get in that scene. Yeah. But, the, I mean, like, it's pretty, it's like part of the playbook where you, you know, first compl- conflate religion and politics, and then you remove the religion forcibly from <laughs> existence, <clears throat> you know, so. So uh, <laughs> other, we- other things are, is... Um, you have the uh, you have this kind of thematic, almost edible thing of like killing the father mentor figure, yeah, and sleeping with the, well, wants to, yeah, with the, the but I had remembered there was a connection between Bertolucci and Godard, mm-hmm. and I had to look it up today because I because I remember him, I remember people saying, well. He's Bertolucci was making a break from Godard when he made this film with the style and the narrative and the film and and this and um, and so the uh, Marcello killing or arranging the assassination of his professor. Interesting. Bertolucci's putting to death (laughs) the influence of Godard (laughs) in the film. And I found a quote in this book. The one book I have on Bertolucci is called Bertolucci's Dream Bloom. And I've only probably read the chapter on the conformist so far. But he he said, um, he said, well, the conformist is a story about me and Godard. So I didn't know I was going to find him actually referring (laughs) to this. He said, when I gave the professor Godard's phone number and address, he gave him in the Interesting. movie. I did it for a joke, but afterwards I said to myself, well, maybe all that has some significance. I'm Marcello and I make fascist movies and I want to kill Godard, who's a revolutionary, who makes revolutionary movies and who is my teacher. So um, by this point, Godard was making like had completely severed any yeah. like narrative film was yeah. He was completely in Marxist, like, political essay film. And this is all, like, in service to capitalism and to the state and to pleasure and to, you know, the, yeah. tra- like, traditional forms of narrative. Even in a movie as weird and experimental yeah. as we feel this, The Conformist to be now, 
Godard thought it's like sellout shit, I think. But Bertolucci's like, okay, I see what you're doing, and I'm not going to... He considers that the first two or three movies he made were sort of like Godard light, his his attempt to do the kind of thing that his mentor Mm -hmm. was making. And this is a movie where he's like, no, I'm going to digest this book, and I'm going to make my adaptation, and I'm going to give it, you know, some thriller aspects and I'm going to give it the music and I'm going to give it a little bit of the melodrama and I'm going to play with the symbols and I'm going to manipulate the audience and I'm going to put out all the stops to make mm. something persuasive and intriguing and dramatic and and all of that. So I think it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I found another article where he talked about uh, he invited Godard to a screening of, or, or Godard went to yeah, he invited him to see a screening of the film when it came out. And then they made arrangements to meet on the street somewhere near the theater afterwards. Yeah. To like, And he wanted to hear like his mentor's opinion on the film. And like he waited and waited and Godard showed up and just handed him a note and walked away <laughs> without a word. And the note just said something like, you have to, you have to make a break with capitalism and... Uh, the the marketplace or something something yeah. very dismissive and yeah. he said I was so pissed off that I like crumpled that up and threw it in the gutter and I wish I'd kept it because it at least would have been this weird memento now yeah. you know I like the film but like it crushed me at the time that you know I expected so much from him and he was kind of just a dick about it and like wrote this like stupid pithy thing yeah. and walked away <laughs> so that kind of reminds me is it is it Godard that Agnes Varda was visiting and like he wouldn't yes. come out and see her. It reminds me of that in, that's in the, Faces Places. That's the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> he, he's, he's very, uh, he's, Bill Murray does that too. Like he does everything on his own terms and nobody on, nothing on anybody else's or something like that. Oh yeah. He doesn't, you can't <laughs> call him. Yeah. You can't. Did you ever read the weird, his weird labyrinthine system? Mm, like, I don't yeah. even remember what it is. Yeah, you have to leave a message. You have to on... leave a message at a particular landline voice machine. Yeah, and or he something. may or may not listen to it. But he him. won't. You can't get to him through an email or intermediaries or agents yeah, or he anything. Won't talk to an agent. If he happens to pick up the phone or walk or call you back or whatever, then. Yeah. But like, yeah. Yeah, that's some good R shit going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, like uh, in faces places, like Agnes Varda goes to visit him. She's hoping to see him. You know. And he agrees to meet her, you and, understand. And then he never shows up. She goes to Switzerland to <laughs> <Yeah>. see him. <laughs> she just waits outside his house and does some filming, but then goes, you know, ultimately goes home. Didn't he leave a note on the window or something? I or? can't remember exactly. But yeah, she. he was like, nope, we're not doing this after all. <laughs> and it's Agnes Varda. Yeah. I mean, who presumably they've been friends for 40 years or more He's, at that point. He was in Cleo... <laughs> Uh, from whatever, from five, five to, to seven. seven. Yeah. yeah, he's in. He agreed to be in the movie. He's in the movie. They were friends. Whatever. No. <laughs> he's a crazy old uh, genius. So, so it's it's interesting that this much discussion came out of this film, which because like initially coming out of it, I did feel kind of like, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I've like had a battle of wanting to show this and talk about it on the podcast and being worried about doing it for a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that, you know, you made the connection between it and Citizen Kane. And I think that that is a really apt comparison because I off, I also feel a little eh about Citizen Kane, but like when you, it, 
it does a lot with symbols too, but like it's almost as important for how important it is to the film community as it is all on its own. Just like what it's what it represents. Like it is a fascinating story about a person who may be compelled to join you know, fascism, which is apt for this time period and political climate. But more than that, I think it's the language that it, for how influential the language that it created, the film, the cinematic language that it created, and now it's like everywhere. Every great artist, or every, great, you don't even need that word in there, every artist reacts to all of their own influences, yeah. right? Then they're digesting their experience and the art that moves them and then making something new with it. And so, like, that's why it, it makes me so happy that the first thing you said when we started recording mm-hmm. today is I immediately saw this in Scorsese and Coppola and yeah. all of those guys. And it's true. You wouldn't have, like, the films of the 70s in the U.S. without this oh, movie. Oh, the, the Coen you, Brothers, too? You wouldn't have Mean yeah. Streets or Taxi Driver. You wouldn't have uh, Godfather Part 2, yeah. Godfather Part 1 or Part 2, yeah. or Apocalypse Now. You wouldn't have the later stuff by uh, Tarantino with Pulp Fiction and that mm. narrative play. You wouldn't have a whole lot of the 70s film. Oh, I didn't think, yeah, Kill Bill is all sorts of, mm-hmm. let's pull this apart and stick it back together in weird ways. Yeah, And Pulp Fiction, too, actually, now that I think on it. And to me, like, going back to Citizen Kane, the least interesting thing about Citizen Kane, the worst thing about Citizen Kane, the biggest sin of Citizen Kane, is the stupid rosebud thing. (laughs) It also does not end well. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's, like, as simplistic as... as, as, Well, it takes a story that could be universal and... I mean, and, like, on top of that, like, a representation of, like, the flaws of the American dream and all of that stuff. And then turns it into, like, a stupid mystery about a... But it's not really because it's a MacGuffin. Like, even... I mean, Orson Welles and Mankiewicz, (laughs) they know that that's just a device. Yeah. But... And it's kind of a wink at the end. But a lot of people like that or think it's interesting and to me it's just the it's just the thing it just seems that gives silly. a purpose it seems for, like a it seems like a big middle finger to the audience to me it's what it seems like i mean in, in this case it's well the funny game. thing is it's that the fun- like it's like a sex joke at the end like let's just throw a sex joke at the end of this well it is you a know. sex joke. i know it's a sex okay joke. <laughs> i was gonna say because rosebud was the nick was yes. her nickname for marion davies lady parts yes it's not just a sled. But, I mean, like, why build up all this? I mean, I, well, I mean, like, that's that's Shakespeare. That's what Shakespeare does. He builds a great giant narrative and then throws a sex joke in the middle of it. So, you know. Or so, so- <laughs> have you ever seen any other movies by Bertolucci? Because for me, this, think, this is the not, one. This I have is it. not seen... Last Tango in Paris would have been probably his next film. I was actually just reading an article about, like... <laughs> You know, it, it, in a Woody Allen type thing, like, can we still appreciate, I mean, like, essentially it was like, can we appreciate the conformist now that we know what a jackass, you know, uh, Bertolucci was about Last Tango in Paris, you know. 
And, like, they're like, yes, we can appreciate this, the ill, you know, the conformist because it's so influential. But, like, Last Tango in Paris is a terrible movie and Bertolucci is not a great guy for having, you know, engaged in that. I had actually wasn't even thinking of that. I totally forgot about Maria Schneider's comments a few years ago about it. Yeah. And then I haven't seen, what is it, the... The Last Emperor? Yeah, I haven't seen The Last Emperor. Is probably his other... Yeah, that's the other one. His biggest film. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either, so... You know, I think what I'm intrigued to go back to at some point, and I don't remember being blown away by it or anything, but because of my interests in film history, is going back to see his film The Dreamers, which may may be his last film Mm. before he stopped making films, which is about Paris 1968 and a bunch of... uh, French film fanatic young kids who uh, who get involved in the political stuff while being totally obsessed with new wave, new wave cinema in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and also having like a menage a trois, of course. Yeah. So. Okay. When did that come out? Like 90s? Okay. Mid, early to mid 90s, I think. So he, Maybe late 90s. When did he start making film? Like uh, 60s? Okay. So. Yeah. He's one of those that, like, you know, who knew He's that, younger than the you French know, New Wave Who knew that Kurosawa was still him. making films in the 80s or whatever, Yeah, you know? I mean, like, I was a child, so it's it, it was... Yeah, I think Kurosawa's last film might have been 92 or something yeah. like that. So yeah. it's it's weird, because, like, I always think of them in that... in the, Well, this one was 1970, and I was like, oh, that's kind of late for Italian, you know? Every once in a while, I'm kind of like... <laughs> What would it have been like to be alive in the late 60s and early 70s where you're waiting for the new Bergman film to come out and the new Bertolucci and the new Godard and the new Truffaut and the new, you know, like the, that, the new Kurosawa film? That would have well, been... I mean, surely there were people who were like that, but I don't think that there were to the level that there are now just because of the 70s is when we had the cinematic histories come out and that's, you know... And and we started to see those, you know. Yeah, but I think those kinds of films yeah. were being seen by like you know college students in the know and yeah. stuff in 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 major cities and yeah. stuff in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. So. Slightly more difficult than passing around a VHS. There's not tape. stuff that <laughs> there's not stuff that good by that lev- that many filmmakers now. Well, I mean, part of that is we don't, not as much film is made. Yeah, I you know. know you're used to, I mean, like, you had to have before, I mean, well, certainly before there were TVs in people's homes, but before there were, definitely before there were VCR, you had to have entertainment. People needed entertainment. They needed new movies all the time. So there were, like, thousands and thousands more movies made. And, you know, there was just a lot of money being thrown around in the post-war era. It was a really, you know, everybody was making money and throwing it around in different ways. And, like, some of that they spent on making films. And, like, now, I mean, like, the amount of money available for making film is not what it was anywhere close, I'm sure. You know? I mean, like, in dollars, it's probably more. But, you know, in... In percentage of entertainment economy, I guess. But some of the stuff I like the best <laughs> is this is the 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 stuff that immediately made that break with big budget 
filmmaking in the machine and just yeah. like, hey, we have two hundred dollars and a sixteen millimeter camera and a wheelchair. Yeah. Let's go make Breathless on the streets this yeah. week. You know, <laughs> it's like one of my favorite movies. Anyway, we've we've gone long overtime, yes. I think, but yeah. I'm glad that this brought up as much as it did. Yeah. I don't even think stuff. we've talked about the movie for about ten minutes now. That's not true. We talked about it. So if you've never seen The Conformist by Bertolucci, it's still definitely worth seeing. Um, It's, I don't know. I I have to see it every few years. Maybe watch it once and then wait a couple days and then watch it again. Or you can locate, uh, when I was an undergrad, I found this uh, academic research journal article called Bertolucci's The Conformist, The Study of the Flashbacks and the Narrative Strategy of the Film. Because in my effort to figure it all out, I went and I was like, oh my God, look, there's a diagram there's showing a all diagram. of the flashback structures and what point eight. I'm like gesturing to this page in this article right now to Ashley, where it just says it's like a, a timeline that's like F1, F2, F3 with this whole chain of the it's structure. It's not a very clear diagram. No, it isn't. Say. But I actually was able to find the article that I was that I read in the UCSD UGL undergraduate library. It wasn't called that. Yeah. Undergraduate library. All those years ago, I found again... Because yeah. I was a nerd and I had to figure out the flashback structure and it helps me to see it visually because somebody else had already done the work. Nowadays, you can find this stuff on the internet. Back then, you had it to go... It would look better as an infographic. I think it would be helpful I, to have I the wish color it were coding. An infographic. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Instead of something somebody wrote on a typewriter. <laughs> Peggy Kidney was writing... Kidney? Peggy Kidney, the author of this article from 1986. You know, so on a typewriter. On a typewriter <laughs> submitted to an obscure journal. Um, but it lays out how it all works. And I'll probably read, reread this article sometime this week. Okay. Well, I just read like three articles on the conformist, but one was from Vox. So, you know. <laughs> all right. That was my pick. This is our show. Leave us a review on iTunes or Apple podcasts. Uh, so people can find us and we'll be back sometime Sometime, hopefully i make no promises (laughs) about when it seems at some point that we've become a once a month podcast because life um we've had a lot of schedule we've had a lot of schedule changes um but uh we'll be back if you subscribe to our show our uh, next episode will drop right into your feed and you'll catch it as soon as it drops (laughs) just waiting with bated breath yeah exactly (laughs) all right we'll see you again soon thanks for listening Bye-bye. Bye.